All right. Lisa, if you want a high five, just let me know. Yeah, I'll run right out. Yeah. Uh, Okay, so my son, he's 10, and he ran his first ever cross-country race this fall. And I promise, like, I don't really talk about running that much, but Paul talked about it, so that's where we're at. Um, So he ran his first ever cross-country race, and this whole running thing is brand new to him this, this year. My husband, his dad, is a great runner, so I think he has potential to be a really great runner if he wants to. But I honestly was just hoping that in his first race, he didn't hate it, like that he would come back and do the next one because it was a series of cross-country races. So we're at this race, and he's running over these big grassy hills, and he's looking exhausted, and he's trying to keep running, and I'm really just reading his face. Like, is he having fun? Does he like it? Is he going to hate it? And he, he finally crosses the finish line, and I can tell he feels pretty proud of himself for the accomplishment, and then they hand him the infamous participation ribbon, and he is sold on cross-country for the rest of the season. The run, it was pretty hard, but that ribbon said that he had done it. And so he goes home, and he, and he like, treasures that ribbon, and the next morning he's like, Mom, I've got a plan, and I'm going to run all five races, and I'll hang the ribbons in my locker. And then when I open it, everybody will see the ribbons and know that I did all these races. So from that point on, he knew that those runs were going to be hard and he was going to be tired, but his eye was on the prize, that shiny purple participation ribbon. (laughs) It's amazing what a little participation ribbon will do. We all need a goal, don't we? And it sure helps if we know that at the end of our goal, there's a good prize waiting for us at the end. We all need a goal. And basically, that's what we've been talking about all weekend. Our goal is to live in a manner worthy of the gospel. To live worthy of the gospel means living together as the church. And that requires, as we have already seen, a lot of humility— which Jesus perfectly modeled for us. It requires a lot of motivation, which we have, because Jesus is exalted in heaven, preparing great things for us. Living worthy of the gospel means pressing on, even when we grow weary. It means living in a way that sets us apart and lets God's light shine in the world around us, through us. And living in a manner worthy of the gospel is not something that we do in vain. There is a prize (coughs) waiting for us in the end. Our prize is the hope of a new heaven and a new earth where we will live forever with Jesus in his perfect creation. Paul exhorted the Philippian church in chapter 1, verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Once again, because we're going to jump ahead to chapter 3, and once again, Paul tells the Philippian church to stand firm. 
And that's my charge to all of you today before we leave here. Stand firm. Hold fast to the truth. Keep running the race. This is our mission, our purpose, our goal. We do it together. We need one another. It's too big of a task for us to stand firm alone. And it's too hard to do it alone because God did not design it to be done alone. He did not design the Christian life to be a solo journey. We are not meant to simply have a private individual walk with Jesus. We are meant to have that, but that's not where it stops. We're meant to come alongside one another, pressing on together. So our main idea this this afternoon is simply together we press on towards the prize. Together we press on toward the prize. Doing this means striving forward, holding on to what we know to be good and true, rejecting what is false. It means choosing who we will align ourselves with and what we will invest in. It means surrounding ourselves with like-minded people who are pressing on towards the goal, the prize of our perfect future with Christ in mind. Now, that doesn't mean that we only surround ourselves with people who are believers. We, of course, we want to have all kinds of relationships, right? But those, those times when it counts, when we are really investing ourselves, we want to consider who we're aligning ourselves with, who are our real people. So we're going to look at this in three parts. Again, because I guess I like threes. I don't know. Paul's teaching seems to lend itself to threes, too. But we're going to look at it from the perspective of straining forward. So like three uh, movements of the Christian life, straining forward and then walking together. Straining forward, walking together, and then standing firm. It's kind of hard to do all those things at one time, right? It's just strain forward and like this, you know, forward movement, but then kind of slow down and walk and then stand firm. But that's what we're called to do as Christians a lot of the time is kind of do the impossible as we looked at before. So three things that we do together, straining forward. Let's read chapter 3, verses 12 through 16 to start. Not that I have already obtained this, or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own, because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. So Paul holds himself up as an example for the Philippian church, and then for us by extension. He says here that he has not yet obtained perfection, but he's working toward it. He's running that marathon, right? And there have been some bumps along the way, like prison, But he presses on, and as he does, he grows more mature in Christ. Now, this section starts with the words, not that I have already obtained this, right? So then we should ask the question, what is this? So we know what Paul's train of thought is leading towards. So look back 
at um, verses 7 through 11 here in chapter 3. And I'm just going to read these so we can see what the this is. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. So Paul says, not that I've already obtained all of this, not that I'm already perfect, but I press on. So because of that, because Paul presses on in order to know Christ, to be found in him, to identify with him, even in suffering, toward the righteousness from God that depends on faith, Paul says he wants to be like Jesus. He wants to be with Jesus, and so he presses on. On. He doesn't get it perfectly right every time. He tells us this, but he's growing, he's striving, he's partnering with Christ in the gospel because Christ Jesus made him his own. And that's why he says that we should follow him. I think we should be, we should stop long enough to just pause at these words that Paul writes here. Because he talks about his motivation, his reasons. And I think we have a lot of motivation and reasons for the things that we do. And so many of them are good reasons and motivations. But what should be the ultimate reason that we do anything? Because Christ Jesus has made us his own. We could look at this as a debt that 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 we're like indebted to him and we should do what's right. But really, it comes back to living in light of who we've been made. This is not a debt. It's, it's living like the children of God that we actually are. Why do we press on? Because we belong to Jesus. We bear his name. We're part of his family. We are his friends. We press on because it's just who we are. Because when we really stop and think about it long enough, nothing else makes sense but to press on. Paul tells us that what is important is looking ahead to the future. He has his eye on the prize. Paul could have spent a lot of time looking back, right? Think about Paul's history. Before his conversion, he sought to arrest, convict, and even kill Christians. He was zealous for what he thought was right, but he was blinded to the truth. In fact, Jesus made him blind then, right, on the road to Emmaus. When he appeared to Paul, when Paul's eyes were open, he saw clearly that this Jesus that he was persecuting was the truth, that he was the Messiah, that Jesus is who he says he is, and that Paul was was full of evil and needed the forgiveness of Christ. Paul could have just looked back with guilt and shame and let that paralyze him, right, because of the horrible things that he had done. Or he could have focused on that unique, powerful encounter that he had with Christ and just kept talking about that with his eyes looking back. 
But he wasn't focused on the past. His eyes were focused on what was to come, being face-to-face with Jesus, free from sin, to live forever in perfect union with his Savior. He was focused on the future where the family of God does perfectly what it's supposed to do. He was kingdom-minded. That was why he was able to confidently say that he wanted to identify with Jesus even in his sufferings because what truly mattered wasn't what, was happening in the, wasn't what had happened in the past, wasn't what was happening right now with his suffering in prison, but what, was, what mattered was attaining the prize in the future, knowing that it was all going to be worth it. What is our focus? Where is our focus? What is it that you think about a lot? Maybe it's the past. Maybe it's shame or guilt or hurt. And if we are dealing with, with past hurt or grief or trauma, we don't want to minimize that, right? We can't just say, oh, great, we're not going to look back there anymore. That's not realistic. But as we keep walking through it, we need to keep our eyes focused on what is to come and not let our eyes keep always getting fixed on what has happened in the past. Constantly looking back at it and harboring all of those feelings is not the answer. The answer to our hurt and our pain is Jesus. He's our healer and our comforter now, bit by bit, as we immerse ourselves in his truth. But he is waiting. He's longing one day to wipe away our every tear and every pain. So keep your eyes fixed on the prize. We, as Paul says in verse 14, await the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. The things that we walk through now, they are real, and they are hard, and they hurt, but this is not the end of the story, so keep on. Press on. For though we press on toward the future, we do so with the assurance that we have already attained it. I know we don't see it yet. We don't fully experience it. We just have glimpses of it, but it's no less certain. It is our current reality. We are already a part of the kingdom of God. That's what scripture tells us. We are part of his family. Every time that we get that, you know, that little warm glow that things are the way that they're supposed to be, that's just like a glimpse of the future that we have to look forward to. Those moments where our soul is at peace, and we just rest, moments of true joy, moments where unity is obvious or maturity is evident, that is our forever. That's what we have to look forward to. True joy that never ends, true rest that never ends, unity that never fails, maturity that comes to fruition. We press on We strain forward to the finish line for the prize of a perfect forever with Jesus, our happy ever after. The happy ever after that each and every one of us is promised if we are in Christ Jesus. It's so much better than a purple participation ribbon, right? We strain forward, eager to reach the prize. But while we do so, we also walk together. So that's our second point. Let's read verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So as we saw earlier, Paul has set himself up as an example to follow. 
He pressed on towards the prize, towards maturity in the faith, becoming more and more like Jesus. He tells the Philippians to join in imitating him. He says, keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So I think that sometimes we're not super comfortable with this kind of language of saying, um, imitate me. Maybe this sounds a little prideful or arrogant to us. Partly, I think that this is because we know that no one is without fault, right? Everyone has mistakes and sins and weaknesses. I am acutely aware of all the ways that I fall short of perfection. If you want to know, you can ask me. Paul is too, right? He just said that. He just told us that he has to obtain perfection. So, <coughs> so why would he tell others to follow him then, to imitate him? Shouldn't he be saying imitate Christ? Well, yes, he is saying imitate Christ, but how do we always know how to imitate Christ? By imitating the people that are imitating Christ. This is not pride. This is the Christian life, the way that God designed the church to be. Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 28, 19, some of his parting words to them, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. So he doesn't say, like, he's going to do all the teaching. He's going to make the disciples. He says that we are going to go out and do it. For some reason, in God's plan, he's decided to use us imperfect disciples to make other disciples. Now, to be clear, we are not trying to make followers for ourselves, right? If I say to somebody, follow me while I try to follow Christ, imitate me because I'm going to try to imitate Christ, I'm not making a follower for myself, the moment that it starts crossing into that territory is the moment that I need to stop, repent, and return to following Jesus. If we're trying to create our own following or trying in any way uh, to get people to follow us, we're not actually following Jesus. What we're talking about here is a humble undertaking. We can think back to last night when we talked about humility as Jesus modeled it. We're to be humble as Jesus is humble. We're to say to others, I'm on this journey. I'm committed to pressing on and straining forward. I really, really want to live a life worthy of the gospel, and I'm not going to do it perfectly, but I'm going to keep trying. So come along with me. I know that Jesus is calling me to live a life worthy of the gospel, so join me. Let's do it together. That's what Paul's saying here. This is discipleship. And we hear this word, discipleship, tossed around a lot, right? And so I think that most of us have a lot of connotations when we hear the word discipleship. I bet you're thinking in certain terms right now. Some of you maybe have negative connotations associated with the word, too, because we've had maybe discipleship programs put on us that are, like, more than we were ready for or whatever. Maybe discipleship sounds like a really good thing, for someone else to do, right? But too hard for you. Maybe you feel like you're not far enough, along enough on the journey or mature enough spiritually. Maybe you're not a people person, and so there's just better people that would, for discipling other people. Maybe you've tried it before, and it was really awkward. It didn't go that well. I have felt every one of those things, right? 
But I'm convinced that what we need to do is take a step back and reevaluate what discipleship is and stop making it such a big, intimidating, formal thing because discipleship is any way that you are being helped to follow Jesus or helping someone else to follow Jesus. It's that simple. Discipleship is just following Jesus and helping other people to do the same. So, like, kids are a great example. If we want to know how to start discipling, and you have kids in your life in any way, like if you're a parent, a grandparent, aunt, uncle, cousin, babysitter, Sunday school teacher, any of the above, if you have kids in, in your life in any way and you ever tell them about Jesus, you are discipling those kids. If you seek to help them understand who he is and what it means to follow him, you are discipling. If you teach Sunday school, you're discipling. If you show up at Bible study with your lesson done and you just contribute to the discussion, you're discipling, truly, because you're helping other people follow Jesus. If you just read your Bible and you just share like a one-sentence thing with somebody else who needs to hear it, you're discipling them, encouraging one another, praying for one another. These are all ways that we disciple one another. It doesn't have to be this big formal thing. If you have friendships where you speak a biblical truth instead of just sharing whatever advice you saw wherever, you're discipling. Every time that you encourage your friend with God's word rather than just sharing something motivating, And every time that someone else does that for you, you're being discipled. So discipleship doesn't have to be an older woman with a younger woman working through like a Bible study or some sort of formal thing. It doesn't have to be inviting someone younger than you into your house so that they can see all the chaos of your life. (laughs) That's a great thing to do. If that works for you, like we just need to think about how, how does it work for us? What's natural for us? Discipleship looks different for different people, and we should give ourselves the flexibility for that. What works for you in your life? How can you invite others into your life to walk beside one another and to help others follow Jesus? Along the way, you'll help yourself follow Jesus, too. This has been an area that I have been weak on for a long time because it was intimidating to me to think of discipleship. I didn't feel like I knew even where to start. Partly, that was because of my shallow understanding of what discipleship was. I put too much on it, and I only looked at it one way. So I didn't realize that I was doing it more than I thought. But it also seemed like too big of a commitment, and I didn't know where to start, and I'm an introvert. And so the idea of having—I kept hearing people say, like, just invite a younger woman to come in and fold laundry with you and talk about Jesus. And I'm like, that sounds terrifying to me. That's my private time, people. (laughs) And I also didn't really feel like I had anything to share with someone else. I know that seems silly when I'm up front sharing with you guys, but um, it seemed presumptuous, too, that someone could and would want to learn from me. How do you, like, ask somebody if they want to learn from you? And who knows my shortcomings better than me? I was afraid that if I invite people to know me that well, they will see my shortcomings. I didn't realize that that would be a good thing. 
So I was challenged a while ago by a couple of friends to consider formally discipling others. And I pray that the Lord would give me opportunities to do that, and he answers those kinds of prayers. And so first, one of those friends connected me to a younger woman, and we started doing a Bible study together. We meet like a couple times a month, and it's, um, it's very casual, but it's definitely formal. Like we have something that we're going through intentionally together. But I, and then the Lord also brought another younger woman into my life who just is going through some really hard times. And so we just sit, and she talks and talks, and I listen, and every once in a while, I get to share little nuggets. And so two very different kinds of relationships, but in both cases, we're just helping each other follow Jesus. And then I have just friendships where we just text truth to one another, or we ask that other person to pray with us. Those are discipleship relationships, too, that had already been in place. In all of these situations like this, what we're really just saying to one another is let's follow Jesus together. We have individual needs for what that looks like, but we share our lives, and we do so intentionally. So what relationships do you already have that you can just build a little bit more intentionality into? Is there somebody that you can commit, maybe, to meeting regularly to talk about the Bible and pray? Could you start texting encouragement to someone else? Could you be more regular with teaching your children about the Bible? Think through, how are you already being discipled? How are you already discipling? And how can you take these areas and just grow just a little bit? Because that's God's design for your life. But what if you are a new believer— or you just really don't feel like you know enough to do this? Well, I truly believe that if you can read your Bible alone, you can read it with somebody else. Get a good resource, and if you want to know what some of those are, come and talk to me. I can give you a couple. Um, So we just need to keep growing by just reading and studying the Bible yourself, and then when opportunity arises, deal with somebody else. Maybe you could find, you could choose a book of the Bible and then find a book that complements that in some way and invite somebody else to read that with you. And you could invite somebody who's maybe further down the path to discuss that with you with the intent that you're going to turn around and do that with somebody else when you're done. That's a great way to start discipling. What if you feel like you're just not worthy of discipling somebody else? Well, why do you feel that way? because you know your own sin, then I think the question to ask yourself is, is this sin, when you sin, do you repent and do you try to follow Jesus? Are you broken by your sin? Do you cling to Jesus' forgiveness? Then aren't you the perfect person to be discipling other people? Because that's exactly what the Christian life is, right? Not that we always get it perfect, but that we know who to turn to when we don't. That's That's the person somebody needs to meet with, the person who's taking their sin seriously. And if you're not sure that you are sorry for your sin, then you are also the perfect candidate for discipleship. Find somebody to walk alongside you and just read scripture with you. Somebody who can hold you accountable and pray for you. Be a disciple by being discipled. This is for all of us. Paul says that we or Paul says that we keep our eyes on those who walk according to the example that we have in us in Paul because it puts, he doesn't say it because it puts our eyes on them, 
but because by putting our eyes on them, it directs our eyes to Jesus. And then looking at Jesus is how we live according to the gospel. So we walk together in fellowship, and we just call it discipleship. But we also stand firm, right? And so let's read these last few verses. For many of whom I have often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Stand firm in the Lord. We need to know the truth. We need to hold on to the truth. Like that's the resounding drumbeat today, right? There are so many who are trying to lead us astray, and we need to be aware of that and on guard by, uh, for that. And we should be grieved by this. We should see through it to the destruction that awaits. Our focus is always directed somewhere. If it's not directed at the truth of God's word, it will be directed somewhere else. Anything that is not of the Lord is ultimately against the Lord. It can be hard sometimes to see through the lies of the enemy. There's so many things in this world that look so convincing, so enticing, and so morally neutral. Every time that we buy into the lie that we can and should have our best life now, we are buying into the lie of the enemy. You know these kinds of lies, that we deserve happiness, that happiness can be bought or earned, a bigger house, better house, a bigger or better car, a smaller or fitter or prettier body, a better system of organization, a solid retirement fund, better health, better spouse, better friends. What do all those things have in common? They're all earthly concerns, earthly measures of success and happiness. The lie, they lie to us. They distract us. They convince us to keep our focus down here on earth. But what does Paul say at the, is the end result of earthly thinking? Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. We don't want to live like this. We have something better. We have seen the sad state of those who glory in their shame, who are on the path to destruction. We need to see through it. We need to be wise enough to trace the lies all the way through to the end. Even those things that seem innocent, if they don't lead to Jesus, they lead to death. One of the greatest lies of sin and the lies of the enemy is that there's this middle ground, right? That sin isn't really that bad. That the little thing that you're doing, sure, maybe it's not quite what God would want you to do, but it's not really like sin, sin, you know? But there's no middle ground, is there? There's right and there's wrong. There's good and there's evil. You are with God or you are against him, and we 
just have to believe that. We have to believe that sin lies to us. And it's so hard because it just really does sometimes feel like there's like sin and then there's like sin, sin. The only way we can see through lies is by setting our mind on heavenly things where Jesus is seated on the throne high and lifted up. Because of him, victory is secure. Because of him, we can press on to the prize. It's a prize so much better than anything we could have here on earth. Verse 20 through 21, I want to read this again. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly bodies to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Our prize is Jesus. Our prize is being on the right side of victory. It's knowing that there's no accusation against us, because we have been reconciled to God. Our prize will be new bodies that never break down or experience decay. It's a future of residing with Jesus in a place so perfect that we can't even begin to imagine it. But I think we should read about it in Revelation 21, 1 through 4. This is what we await. This is our, our prize that we have our eyes on. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. These words are trustworthy and true. This is what we look forward to. This is what we press on towards. This is what we walk together towards. This is what we stand firm for. Because we have a glorious future. So sisters, stand firm in the Lord. We do face all kinds of trials and obstacles in life, but we run for the greatest prize. So we end this time together this weekend, but we don't end the race. So stand firm, keep striving, try to live a life worthy of the gospel. And look forward to reaping the prize at the end when God will look at you and see the perfect righteousness of Jesus when he looks at you and he will say to you, well done, my good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your promises are too great for us to even comprehend that we will one day stand before you in Jesus' righteousness and hear your words of affirmation and know that all of this was worth it beyond a shadow of a doubt. So would you help us to stand firm, to keep straining forward, and to walk together in love and unity? Would you help us to keep our eyes fixed on you? And as we leave here this weekend, I pray that you would help us not to be overwhelmed by anything that we've heard, 
to rest in you knowing that it is finished, it is done on our behalf. But to also just think about like one or two things that you're just challenging us to do and and to feel excited and encouraged and empowered to do those things, to keep moving forward with you. So as we leave here, I pray that your word would continue to transform us, to grow us more and more in your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen.